It's lovely to see you all this evening. We're going to be continuing the series we've been looking at uh, during this season of Lent, which is Mark and chapter 14. So it would be great if you could keep your Bibles open for, on the Gospel reading, or otherwise open them again, to page 1015, page 1015, Mark chapter 14, and we're starting in verse 53. The other thing that you might find helpful is there's a sermon outline in the middle of your bulletin, and you could take notes, or it might show you where we're going during the sermon. So we start with prayer. Mighty Father, you set before us in your word hard things. So we pray that you would grant us ears to hear those things and hearts to be molded by them. Grant us not to have hard hearts, but soft hearts, as we consider your holy word together. And now may the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. Peter had just confessed that Jesus was the Christ, God's promised Savior. It was a triumph. It was a sweet day, but it quickly turned sour. For Jesus had started teaching about how he must suffer, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed and then rise. Peter was horrified. Peter rebuked Jesus, which earned him those stinging words, Get behind me, Satan. Because you see, for Jesus, rejection, suffering, and death itself was essential to being the Christ, the Savior. And as he went on to explain, it was much what his followers should expect as well. For as he said on that day, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Oh, that bittersweet day is now long past. And since then, Peter has indeed been following Jesus. He's become one of his closest disciples. He's followed him as he's done his ministry. As he's come down to Jerusalem, as he's gone to teach in the temple, he's followed him to the Last Supper. And then he followed him out to the Garden of Gethsemane, where, as we saw last week, Judas betrayed him with a kiss, and they all fled. And that is more or less where our passage today starts. Mark 14 and verse 53. As we see Jesus now being led to the high priest's palace. But what of Peter? Well, it turns out Peter is still following Jesus. Well, kind of. He's now following Jesus, but with a safe distance between them. Verse 54, Peter had followed him at a distance right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. You can picture the scene, can't you? 
It's like a, a courtyard attached to the main house. There's an entrance gate where they come in. Then in the courtyard, there are, there are servants and guards and other people standing around this fire. And then there's another doorway which leads up to where the Lord Jesus is being tried. At this point, Mark's gospel leaves Peter by the fire and follows Jesus all the way. And here now we see, with Jesus, the whole religious council, the Sanhedrin, gathered to sentence him to death. Don't misunderstand their intention. They have no intention of finding out the truth about Jesus. They are seeking, verse 55, testimony against Jesus to put him to death. But that's not fair, is it? No, it's not fair. But it is the normal response of darkness to light. It is the normal response of the world to Jesus. The world does not carefully assess Jesus' claims and weigh up the evidence. The world decides already that he is a threat to be rejected and denied and acts accordingly. Even today. And the same often happens to those who truly follow him, for as he warns elsewhere, if they persecuted me, they will persecute you as well. Well, it turns out the trial itself is both a sham and a farce. First of all, they can't find any reason to condemn Jesus, despite the fact he had been teaching openly day by day in the temple. So they try to use false witnesses to accuse him. But the false witnesses can't work out what they're meant to accuse him of. And their testimonies do not agree. Even when they try to take his own words and twist them against him, they still cannot make their testimony agree. I think at this point, any reasonable man seeing this would think, hang on, you're saying this man deserves death, but why is there neither charge nor evidence? Am I right? But these are not reasonable men. These are men whose hearts are hardened so that the lack of charge and evidence now does not stop them at all. They press on. The high priest stands up, verse 60, and asks Jesus, Have you got no answer to make? What is it these men testify against you? But Jesus neither needs nor wants to defend himself. Quite apart from the fact that their statements are self-refuting and contradictory anyway, he does not actually intend to be acquitted by this court. For he knows that this unjust trial is but on a, a step on the way to his great work of dying for us, bearing the sins of the world on the cross. And so, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, he opens not his mouth. The high priest asks him something new, not now to defend himself, but to confess whether he really is the Christ. He says, are you the Christ, the Son of the Blessed? I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming with the clouds of heaven. 
Jesus answers. Not only is Jesus being crystal clear, but his confession is upping the stakes tremendously. Not only is he agreeing that he is the Christ, the long-awaited Savior of God's people, but he's saying, as he alludes to the Psalms and to the prophet Daniel, he's saying that he is also the one who will judge and rule the world forever. And if that doesn't give them pause for thought, nothing will. And consider this. Why would someone make such a statement that will lead to certain death? Unless, of course, it is true. But they don't think of that. They press on to killing the Savior of the world. The high priest, hearing this, tears his garments. It is the height of religious hypocrisy. This is a man who is standing here arranging an unjust trial with false witnesses to put to death a sinless man who is pretending to be religiously outraged by the words Jesus spoke. He doesn't care this man about right or wrong. He's full of murder, but he pretends that the, this man Jesus has uttered the terrible, most worst blasphemy he could in his presence. Beware of that kind of hypocrite. What further witnesses do we need, he says. You've heard his blasphemy. What's your decision? But what, dear brothers and sisters, is this blasphemy of which he charges him? What in anything that Jesus has said or done is blasphemy? Nothing. The whole hope of Israel was that the Christ, the Messiah, would come and save them. How can it possibly be blasphemy for the Christ to come and save them? Yet blasphemy, he insists, it is, and the whole council of the Sanhedrin condemn him to death, which, as we heard from our Old Testament reading, is the penalty for blasphemy. And they're not content with a false trial and a false charge and a false verdict. They set about abusing and mistreating the Lamb of God. They spit on him. They cover his face and they strike him, crying, prophesy, and even the guards receive him with blows. Make no mistake, what is happening here has got nothing to do with justice, but everything to do with hatred, unfounded jealousy, and blind, wicked anger. And if we will follow him, we must be prepared for the same unfair, unfounded, and unjust treatment at the hands of the very same world. For they will hate us, just as they first hated him. For at this point, Mark's gospel brings us back to Peter again, who is still there in the courtyard, warming himself by the fire. And a servant girl from the high priest comes, and she stares intensely at Peter. She says, verse 66, you were with the Nazarene, Jesus. It seems like he has not put enough distance between him and Jesus. It seems like he still might get sucked into suffering with Christ. But it also seems like he's been given another chance, doesn't it? Another chance to deny himself, take up his cross, and follow Jesus once more. But he does not deny himself. He denies Jesus. I neither know nor understand what you mean, he says. And instead of going to follow him to the judgment hall, he retreats even further now back to the gateway. And the rooster crows the first time.
But the servant girl's not finished. She sees that he has not utterly deserted Christ. And so she starts saying to those around her, this man is one of them. This, this man is one of them. It is a second chance to deny himself. But again, it is Jesus he denies. At that point, the bystanders say, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. And now Peter swears a curse upon himself that he does not even know the man. And the rooster crows the second time. And suddenly, the words Jesus had spoke come flooding back to him. Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. Peter had protested at the time that he would never deny Jesus, even if he had to die with him. But yet here he is, denying him again and again and again, while Jesus is going to die alone. He has failed to follow Jesus. He has chosen to deny Jesus to save his own life. But what did Jesus say on that bittersweet day? Whoever would save his life will lose it. And that is just the path that Peter has set himself upon. And I'm sure that this is not true of all of us. But I wonder whether there might be some of us here who identify with Peter rather more than we should. Perhaps even now we feel... We know that we are following Jesus, but only at a safe distance. We're unwilling to share in the suffering, unwilling to deny ourselves and pay the cost of discipleship. Are we perhaps still stood warming our hands at the world's fire rather than stood with Christ in the judgment hall? Peter feared a very present and real threat of death. Or perhaps it's something else that we might fear that keeps us from truly following him. Perhaps there are things we just can't bear to give up in order to follow him all the way. Perhaps for some of us, things like pornography or alcohol abuse or gluttony or, or like Judas before him, greed. Things we refuse to leave behind us to deny ourselves and follow him. Or perhaps they are not so secret things at all. They keep us distant from the cross. Perhaps we fear losing our jobs or missing out on promotions. Perhaps that leads us to deny Christ by hiding or compromising our faith in the workplace. Perhaps even when we're asked to work on the Lord's Day, we, we never even say a word in protest. Let's go along. Perhaps we're those who, it's when we're with our old non-Christian friends that suddenly we become ashamed of Christ and his words. We become fearful of the ridicule they might give us if they know that we follow him. Or perhaps for the sake of a relationship we know we shouldn't be in anyway, we're unwilling to deny ourselves and follow him. but I don't want you to get me wrong. I'm not saying that any of us are like those in the Sanhedrin condemning Christ. I know that's not you. I know you want to follow Christ. That's why you're here today, every one of you. 
we love him and want to follow him. But what I am saying is that this passage should make us consider whether that following is at a safe distance. For if it is, then there is no advantage in deceiving ourselves that it's not true. If we are keeping our distance today, then I fear that we are but a step away from denying Christ tomorrow like Peter. And maybe two steps from seeking to save our lives and losing them. If it can happen to St. Peter, it can happen to us too. However, if you realize today you are a little bit like Peter in this, then I urge you to pray that you might also be like Peter in what comes next. For at this point, and this is wonderful, this is Mark 14, and the end of verse 72, Peter breaks down and weeps. Praise the Lord, Peter breaks down and weeps. Do you see how close Peter had been to ending up like Judas? He and Judas had both been given terrible predictions of what they would do to Christ, how Judas would betray him, how Peter would deny him thrice. Both came to pass, but Judas never found that repentance, that godly sorrow that Peter now shows. It is never written in Scripture that Judas broke down and wept. Yes, he had worldly regrets. He tried to give back the money, but his end would be hanging himself in the reward for his wickedness. But Peter here, it's wonderful, isn't it? By God's grace alone, Peter breaks down and weeps. Let us pray for a heart like Peter's, a heart which weeps over our sin and comes back to God. And let us fear, most of all, that terrible state of Judas, that state where our sins no longer fill us with sorrow or shame, our conscience is so seared by sin we might never find repentance. Let's pray God gives us that new and tender heart like Peter's. For as St. Paul writes, godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation with no regrets. The next part of Mark's gospel is going to leave Peter. And it's going to follow Jesus to Pilate, another unjust trial, and then the cross itself. And we're going to see that together on Good Friday. But what does happen next for Peter? Well, despite denying Jesus three times, it was not the end for him. For his repentance was met with forgiveness. Jesus himself, the risen Lord, met him again in Galilee and restored him and sent him out again as a minister of the gospel, a ministry which ended only when he found his own cross and died. Yet in the process, he has learned some very important lessons, lessons which he, later in life, sought to pass on to other Christians, knowing that we, like him, have this struggle to truly follow Christ we find them in the letter we call First Peter. I'm going to give you briefly three of his top tips for following Christ all the way because they're practical and come from a man who really knows. Tip one, we must understand that suffering unjustly is part of our calling and Christ is our example. 
Peter thought then he could follow Jesus at a safe distance without having to suffer to share his unjust suffering or death. But now he says, 1 Peter in chapter 2, if when you do good and suffer, you endure, it is a gracious thing in the sight of God, for to this you have been called. For Christ also suffered for you, leaving the example that you may follow in his steps. And how is Christ the example? Just think of what Christ was doing there. Christ, who had no sin, with no deceit in his mouth, who deserved no punishment, but who unfairly and unjustly suffered the ultimate death on the cross to bear our sins on the tree. Take the first top tip. Follow Christ even when it means being treated unfairly and unjustly like he was first. Second top tip is that we need to understand that we are blessed when we suffer for righteousness and Christ's sake. Peter's heart back then reasoned it would be better to deny Christ than to suffer for him. Yet now he urges the exact opposite. The blessing is in suffering, not avoiding it. You remember how he was so scared of the servant girl and the bystanders as they asked him about his association with Jesus? We'll hear what he says now in 1 Peter in chapter 3. He says, do not fear them. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you. Always be ready to answer. And again, he says, if you're insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed. So take his tip. No matter who asks you about Jesus, no matter what you fear they will do to you, no matter who they are, whether they're colleagues or criminals or police or giants or friends or foes, go right ahead and tell them all about Jesus. For even if you should suffer for it, you are blessed. And the third top tip is perhaps the most wonderful of all. It is to humble ourselves under God and resist the devil. It was what we heard in our New Testament reading earlier. Peter, if you remember, has had this long struggle with the devil. The devil is the one who had Peter try to dissuade Jesus from going to the cross. That's why he was rebuked. Get behind me, Satan. That's Satan's line to avoid suffering. But now, fallen yet forgiven, restored once more, he says... <coughs> Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and resist the devil, knowing that after you have suffered a little while, God himself will, can, will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish us. So take that third tip. Submit yourself to God and not to the devil. Resist the devil and know that on the other side of suffering is exaltation. As we conclude, my dear brothers and sisters, I just want to remind us of one thing, and that is the reason why it really is worth following Jesus, even through suffering. Let me remind you of the reason he suffered and went to the cross and died, which is in Peter's own words, that he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. He suffered and died so unjustly, so unfairly, that when we sinners come to him, we, like Peter, can be forgiven our sins and restored to God. So if today you're feeling guilty, 
then that is where you must go, to the cross where he bears your sins and forgives them and gives to you the hope of eternal life, the promise of the day when there will be no more injustice or no more suffering, but just glory and joy with him who so loved us. He gave his life for us. Let's pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for the depths of your love towards us. For though we were sinners, deserving of death itself, you sent your Son to bear our sins, that through him we could be forgiven and given the gift of eternal life. We pray, Almighty Father, that you would teach us to follow him truly, that you would help us not to fear the world, not to be turned aside by the devil, but to persevere in faith to the very end. We pray you would give us strength to deny ourselves, to confess Christ even when it means suffering and suffering unjustly. We pray that by your Spirit you would give us grace to endure all these things. Pray, Almighty Father, that our hearts would, be not, would not be so hardened that we are unable to weep and break down over our sins. We pray that you would work in our hearts to bring us to true repentance, that we would find forgiveness in him. Pray that you would keep us faithful in him to the day he comes again, brings us to that blessed kingdom that knows no end. And we pray it in his name. Amen. Please stand and we will say together the words of the Apostles' Creed to be found on page 34. Page 34. Together. <clears throat> 